Welcome to episode 107 of the Search with Canada podcast, recorded on Tuesday the 6th of April 2021. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and I'm on holiday, which is why this was recorded on the 6th of April. What I will be bringing you today is a LinkedIn live session I did the week before last with Alex Holliman from Climbing Trees, very accomplished agency leader and SEO. We took to LinkedIn for just over half an hour, I think it's about 40 minutes, and answered your questions on SEO Live. We got a really great spectrum of SEO questions. Uh, we had a couple asked ahead of time, but mainly we're answering these off the bat. I was happy about how it went, so I've, I've taken that video, got the audio for you here, and wanted to, to share it because I think there's a lot of value in there, especially from Alex's answers as well, to, to give you a different viewpoint that you might not have heard before. It's likely going to be um, something that we're going to do on a regular basis. So if you want to join in on a kind of Q&A live SEO session, find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Mark Williams hyphen cook and you will find me and you will get alerts then when we are going to be live. I imagine we're going to start doing every Friday at the end of the month if you want to join in. Before we kick off, I want to tell you this episode is kindly sponsored by Sightbulb. Sightbulb, if you don't know, is a desktop-based SEO audit tool for Windows and Mac. I've used it for years. It's an absolutely brilliant bit of software. Um, we were talking last week about QA and SEO and kind of checking things regularly to make sure they're still working rather than waiting for a big problem to occur and then trying to get to the bottom of what's caused it. This is actually possible with Sitebulb, which a lot of desktop kind of based tools don't have this ability, but you can actually set up scheduled crawls with Sitebulb. So this means if you've got a little dedicated machine somewhere, for instance, or if your machine's on at the end of the day, you can schedule regular crawls, whether it's daily or weekly. And actually in your project view in Sitebulb, so that project is normally associated with a single website, you can then see the subsequent crawls and in that audit you do, that crawl that you've completed, it will show you the difference in issues, whether they've gone up or down. So it's a really nice way to um, very easily keep track of issues before, well, keep track of the, if you have issues rather than waiting for them to, to kind of crop up and cause you problems. It's something that's really nice because it's desktop-based software, you're not limited by a number of URLs or anything like that, which sometimes you can get, cloud systems can get quite expensive. So that's uh, one ability out of many you've got with Sitebulb. If you haven't tried it yet, if you go to sitebulb.com, you can get a free trial. But if you go to sitebulb.com forward slash SWC for search with Canda, SWC, you'll get an extended 60-day trial. No credit card or anything required, so give it a go. Apart from that, I hope you enjoy this live Q&A. We'll start off with some of the questions that were submitted um, before. Um, so I did say if you submitted questions before the live stream, we're more likely to to answer them, basically, because if we don't know the answer, we can kind of just Google it and look it up and then tell you and pretend we knew all along. Um, but we'll start with some easy ones. So 
one of the first questions we actually had was, um, what are the first steps going into SEO? Any recommendations? And a similar question, I've grouped them together. Any recommendations on starting a successful career in SEO? Uh, so, uh, yeah, Alex, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's I think it's important to try and stand out when you're starting a career. And so there's a number of um, skill shop exams that you can look at for Google Analytics and Google Ads. And foundationally, that will give you some sort of introduction to the world. And I think as a candidate, that will allow you to sort of stand out. And I think then beyond that, it doesn't take that much to register a URL, set up a WordPress website, and then start demonstrating or learning the kind of stuff that you want on your own site. So that could be on-site optimization. It could be making sure the site's like technically okay, optimizing for speed, and then, you know, obviously getting it ranking for a few terms and driving some links. And as a sort of case study, as a start in a, to go to an employer and say, I'm looking to get into this industry, I think that's foundationally quite a good place to begin. So, yeah, the, the other advice I would give if you are looking to start a career in SEO is I'll cheat and give you this resource uh, done by a very nice chap called Carl Hendy. He's been in uh, the kind of SEO sphere for a very long time now. He's actually written an article which is uh, it's entitled something like how to get a job at an SEO agency with no experience in SEO. And he gives you a really good breakdown on the things you can do from kind of home with your own site. You can learn for free um, and the kind of things that you're likely to be asked in an interview and what some acceptable and, and actually non-acceptable answers are. So he gives you some quite funny examples, I think, of things he's heard uh, in interviews. So let's jump on to the next question. I'll just check comments. So brilliant. Thank you for dropping the questions in the comments. We'll come back to them. Um, and our next question we've got is, uh, on an e-commerce site, a few products are in multiple categories with different URLs. Um, should I keep them in all? So this is, uh, I think, I see this happen a lot with Shopify sites, especially. So Shopify organize products into what are called collections, which other sites only call categories. And what happens in Shopify then is normally, you, if you have, say, let's take an example, say you have, uh, I don't know, say you're selling a wooden chair, for instance, and you had um, kitchen furniture as a category and, I don't know, outdoor furniture as a category, and you put this chair in both, what will happen is you'll get two URLs. One will be like forward slash kitchen furniture, forward slash wooden chair, and the other will be forward slash outdoor furniture, forward slash wooden chair. So you've got the same product on two or three or more different URLs. By default, um, what Shopify will do is use a canonical tag to try and fix this, which kind of helps. So the canonical tag will pick, you pick what's the primary category and it will uh, try and say to search engines, just rank this URL. It's not ideal because uh, canonical tags are hints, not directives, which means search engines can ignore them. So if you get lots of links to the wrong category, that one will actually start ranking. The best thing you can do with a platform like Shopify, um, and actually um, things like Magento will do off the bat when, when you first install them, is they'll have product URLs, which are... Uh, agnostic of the category they're in, which will mean rather than have something like yoursite.com forward slash uh, living room furniture forward slash chair, it will just have forward slash and then the product name. So I think that's quite a good approach um, to, to take because then you only have one URL for each product. You don't have to worry about 
duplicate content or canonicalization or anything, uh, anything like that. Um, I don't. I think personally that outweighs whatever microscopic benefit you would have of having keywords in the URL. Uh, for me, that's not really a thing. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Alex. Or if there's anything you want to add, I think um, yeah, the Shopify takes care of that out of the box, and um, sometimes there is a valid reason for the same product being in more than one category, and so you can usually sort of work it all out from there. Perfect. So here's the, here's the hot topic at the moment, uh, which is what's the next step from the no-click punch that Google has landed? And then I put these two questions together, both from Harry. Should rich snippets slash formats be lent into or avoided to keep unpaid traffic up? I'll let you dive in that one first. Uh, hospital pass. Um, so I almost think it's fair enough if Google wants to disintermediate um, website owners. I think they can pretty much do what they want, and they do. So I think you can question the motives of why Google would choose to do that. And I think if you were getting traffic prior to there being a no-click result and then suddenly a no-click result gets um, shown, you can appreciate why you'd be gutted with that. Um, I think if you look at Google's motives, and I question why they'll do it, they in some cases they probably feel that they can do a job better for the user in terms of some of the no-click results they'll demonstrate. In other cases, it's quite evident they will just get up to some, I don't know how to say it, but you could say duplicitous, like um, like some quite dodgy sort of things where they're basically just taking other people's content and then serving that in the box. And so as a, as a site owner, there's not much you can do with that. I think that the um, as was shown with like the CSS thing with Google Ads, there can be action taken to Google to sort of limit their power, but that's usually quite slow before anything ends up particularly changing for you as a website owner. And so the whole thing with rich snippets, I think that is absolutely a potential solution. I think then you can look at, you know, potentially longer tail searches, things like um, the people also ask questions, which will focus on the snippets. And the whole argument then moves down to, you're not gonna be getting as many clicks but you can then start looking at the volume of impressions your content is being served on within the SERPs. Yeah. I mean, I've been following this, this, and it is just for broken down a kind of an argument um, in the SEO community around, you know, this similar web data that was published by Spark Toro saying that, you know, website owners are losing clicks and Google obviously replied with their blog post saying, well, actually we're sending more clicks than ever as a raw number. Of course, they don't give us the percentages, um, I mean, my view on this is that this change is, is user-led in that users are finding it more useful to have no-click results. So I don't think it's going away. And I think if you fight it, you're trying to swim upstream. And actually, from an SEO point of view, I think it's, we shouldn't get painted into this corner of necessarily like a performance marketing channel. So there's bags of research that shows that there is great brand benefits to you being visible at the top of Google when people are searching for stuff. You know, that's all going in your brand equity pot, if you like. Um, and this is going to just become more apparent, you know, when typing stuff into Google and looking at a set of results seems archaic and it will seem archaic at one point. It will seem like how you used to go to the library, look up a book number and crawl around on your hands and he's trying to find it. 
when people in a few years are just kind of like shouting at their TV for an, for an answer and they're getting the answer straight back, I think there's definite benefit to being the brand that's providing those answers. So, yeah, I mean, my direct answer is, you know, I think definitely you should lean into rich snippets and formats um, because that's what's going to happen. So, your you know, your choices are do it and have a slice of the, the benefits that come from that. And you might want to look at how you're measuring the impact of your SEO as well. Um, because if you're only measuring the performance side, you're not necessarily showing the value you're getting from, from these types of results as well. Cool. Uh, should we jump in and see if we can take a live question as well? Um, <laughs> Dale Davies, um, I used to own a Gibson. It's now an Epiphone because um, I only bought it to play with Rocksmith. I don't play as much as I used to, so I couldn't didn't want to spend 800 quid on something to uh, plug into a computer game. Um, here you go. How to go about international? Just having a look through these questions here. So, so here you go. So um, Tom is asking, what's the best SEO tool right now? Is SEMrush outdated? SEMrush IPO'd, is it yesterday? yesterday. Yeah, saw, yeah. yeah, so big news for them. Um, I, I don't think there's, there's one answer to this, Tom. I don't know if Alex will agree with me. So we use SEMrush, um, but I think you are setting yourself up for a fall if you use any one platform. Um, so I spoke to someone this week where I saw on um, one of these platforms, I won't say which one, that their web traffic had gone, apparently their organic web traffic had gone from 5 million visitors a month down to like three, three and a half million. So I just dropped them a message being like, oh, hey, what's going on here? Is this right? And their response was basically, no, that's completely wrong. Our traffic's absolutely fine. Um, and this just comes down to how this particular platform is estimating traffic. Um, and I've seen great examples where um, Ahrefs and SEMrush will give uh, the same keyword a very high difficulty score, and, a very, and another tool will give it a very low one. So I think the you know the value that a lot of these tools are adding is around um, forecasting and estimation and viewing data that we don't have, or viewing estimates of the data we don't have hard data of, in that there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of room to go off, off piece. So even when we do backlink audits, you know, I love Majestic. I've used it for years, but I do use Ahrefs and other uh, linked data like MozNow and combine them all because no one tool is perfect. If I had to choose kind of one SEO tool, um, I mean, that I use the most in terms of, regularity nowadays it's probably something like sitebulb which is actually yeah, a uh, yeah it's a desktop based um auditing tool and um it's just fantastic in the insights it gives and especially for people learning seo um because it it, it gives a lot of the recommendations with um kind of explanations as as well and it, it's just an incredibly good useful tool but in terms of the big platforms you know i would say you've got to you know, really use more than one if you're if you're doing it seriously to make sure you're not you're not you know to hedge your bets. Absolutely, uh, we use Semrush as an agency across all our work, and that's quite foundational. Absolutely love Sightbulb, and I think it's sort of taken over its place in our affections that Screaming Frog once had, and I feel really guilty about it because I love Screaming Frog. 
Um, the other thing that we're using a lot of, there's um, Christoph Semper System link research tools. So for some of our larger link building clients, we have a sort of enterprise uh, agreement with them. And that probably brings in data which is similar to Ahrefs and Majestic, but is maybe a little bit more forensic in terms of its analysis. Um, and so that's been absolutely transformative on that side of the business over the last couple of years. Good stuff. Uh, and, he wears, and he wears an orange suit. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? It's always uh, always easy to spot. So from um, LinkedIn user, I don't know why this comes up as LinkedIn user, but it does. So to our anonymous LinkedIn user, how to go about international SEO apart from language optimization? optimization. How is it different from national SEO? Do you want me to kick off on that or do you want to have first Starbucks? Well, I think so. Um, the international projects that we've worked on, we would do the piece within Google Search Console where we have a separate sitemap per territory and then set it up as a separate property within Search Console. And that then allows you to start seeing the relative performance by territory. And you can inform Google of some quite useful information in terms of what you're targeting. I think um, in terms of if it's not the translation piece, then to really we've had some e-commerce clients that have gone through the internationalization process and they have when going from say the uk to the german market or out in the middle east they will then have a local customer service representative as well so that they can then fulfill sort of live chat and that kind of thing because i think the customer service element internationally is critical to gaining some sort of traction and momentum there was something else i was going to say but it's left me so in terms of international SEO, there's some te there's some technical stuff uh, around a um, hreflang tags. Yeah, yeah. So you can specify to Google um, and other search engines which pages are targeted at which regions and which languages. Now, this comes in particularly um, this is particularly helpful when you're covering diff very different regions with the same language. So the example I'll give here is. Uh, the UK versus USA versus Australia, all speaking English, vastly different cultures, um, and obviously you need to you need to show one price in dollars, one price in dollary dues, and another price uh, in in pound sterling, and you need Google to understand the difference between those pages without hreflang tags. Sometimes Google, quite commonly Google, gets mixed up showing maybe a US page instead of instead of a UK one. Or, or vice versa. So there's that technical hreflang stuff that happens in the background that users don't see. And in terms of, you've grouped here as language optimization. I'd say there's two elements to that. There's language translation, which obviously you want to do. And there's localization, which is, again, US, UK is a good example. Um, the way that people in the US buy and the language they're used to being sold to is very different to in the, in the UK. You only need to, if you ever go to the US, watch TV there to realize like, how different the ads are. So there's a lot of value in actually localizing. And the last point I'd add is, again, a technical one, which is to do with core web vitals and site performance. So in your Google Search Console, you have your feedback on how your site performance is in terms of core web vitals, which is based on your, uh, which is based on the Chrome user experience report, which is the aggregated data from real users. And as Alex said, if you're splitting out your Search Console between the locations, that's important because if you are serving a site to a specific country, for instance, or region that has slow internet, your same site may score red on Core Web Vitals, where in another country it's scoring green, which means 
you can there's actually international technical optimization you can do so you can say well in this region the average internet connection is like 3g so we need a lighter version of our site to to deliver in that area to maintain experience so there's three other things that i'd look at for for international was there another thing you wanted to add there Alex? i saw you like no no i was totally agreeing i think it's good oh, okay cool uh let's jump to one of our um our questions we got before we kicked off so here we go uh page speed for closed platforms like squarespace and shopify is there a way to make them faster you can tell us that one alex is there a way to make them faster yeah so i think you could before selecting a theme or a template you can um obviously do some work in terms of analyzing which themes or templates you're using. So make sure you haven't got one with loads of bloat and takes ages to load and is really, really, really slow. And so you can select themes that are going to give you a head start out of the box. But I think if you're working on a site that's already um, there, you can do a lot of work in terms of um, image optimization. So like compression, so you make sure you do, do it losslessly. You can try and reduce how many like third-party scripts and fonts that you're using. And then I think one of them does a lot of stuff with Cloudflare and it plays quite nicely with it, but the other one doesn't. I can't remember which way around it is. It's sort of um, jumbled up in my head, but it might be that I think with Shopify you can, but with Squarespace, Squarespace maybe you can't in terms of using something like um, a CDN that will just propagate the site faster. Yeah, absolutely. So I did notice as well that so a lot of this will depend on. So it's it's generally the the front end stuff that affects the page speed for end users. And there are a couple of resources online now where they rank um, Shopify themes by how they score with Core Web Vitals. So that can be a really good place to start because the platform itself can be fine. But if you use a bad kind of theme for it, then that can that can ruin things for you. So just be be careful in terms of what you what you choose for the theme and, and look for the resources where people are actually recommending them, because there is only so much you can do. Obviously, well, you can't change the back end of these. The front end is the, the only bit that's under your control. Uh, does you go? Oh, so it, I appreciate, um, I appreciate, by the way, obviously, everyone that submitted these questions, English isn't your first language. So I appreciate, um, appreciate this is fine. Go ahead, ask a question, even if you're worried about your English. I, I promise you, your English is better than any other foreign language <laughs> I can attempt to speak. So keep going for that. So we're essentially asking here, basically, is duplicate content still a thing? We need to worry. We need, well, is, was it a thing? Is it a thing? Do we need to worry about it? And I think I've seen a lot of clients have been, not manipulated through fear, but sort of said, oh, you've got duplicate content on the site, you're going to get a penalty. But I just think those days are well past us in terms of at the sort of scale that a lot of the clients that I speak to, they're not going to have an issue. I think that the duplicate content thing was uh, Panda, wasn't it? That was the update that was set out to try and, you know, these massive content farms with really low quality um, content going out, like thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And so there was an algorithm update to take care of that sort of low quality content. I think duplicate content is a sort of subset of that. But I, th I think you can just resolve a lot of this stuff with using like relic calls canonical, because sometimes there is a good reason for having more than one version of a page, as you said. So it's not something, it's something that we would focus on and look at. So if we had five URLs that are all the same, 
we would sit down with um, a client and say, well, actually, which ones of these are needed? Is there a reason for all five being needed? And if there isn't, see what we could do to remove some of them, maybe redirect them, or just put a very course clinical tag in. Yeah, I think the, the important thing to notice is that only in extreme cases is there like a duplicate content penalty per se. So if you're just mass scraping and republishing sites, then sure, Google's probably going to take action against you. In terms of, oh, some of our pages are identical, or even we've got copied pages from other sites for whatever reason, you're not going to get a penalty for that. All that happens is Google will filter out and choose one result. And I think I spoke about this the other day, specifically with images, because the same applies for images, right? If you do a search in Google images, of course, Google doesn't show you the same image over and over again, right? It's just going to, it's going to show you unique images. So the point I made was, if you're using stock imagery that hundreds of other websites are using, it's unlikely you're going to win the image lottery and, and be seen in uh, Google images. And the same is true in terms of duplicate content, like, it's not a huge deal. Um, it I just wouldn't I just wouldn't expect it to rank well um, if you if you've got duplicate content inside, unless you're the obviously the original author and someone else has copied you. But that's that's obviously a, that's a different kettle of fish. Um, I think related to this is uh, faceted navigation. What in the heck? Uh, how best to deal with complete chaos? What a brilliant question. How to how to deal with chaos? Um, so faceted navigation, for those that don't know, is, for instance, on an e-commerce site, you're trying to buy shoes and you've got, you can filter and change what you're seeing by maybe size, price, you can change the order of products. Um, so th there's two bits of guidance I'd give here, which is one, um, if you, the, these, these filters and facets exist because they're helpful to users so they can share what they're seeing on their screen with someone else. So they can say, look at these trainers and you can see what they're seeing on the screen. So those URLs need to exist. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that a web crawler, Googlebot needs to be able to access that URL as well. Um, so in my, in my case, I would recommend two things, which is if they're really um, specific filters and facets that are things that you just don't think there's any search volume for, or it's ridiculous. Like say, you know, red trainer, red men's trainers under 39 pounds. You might want to think, well, people search for red trainers maybe. So I'll have that as a crawlable category. People search for men's trainers. I'll have that as a crawlable category. And you might decide that 30, under 39 pounds isn't one. So the way you, you can build the site is to have not have those links actually discoverable by search engines. You still use canonical tags on them in case someone decides to link to them. So you get the uh, equity go to the right place. Um, if you can't change the actual site, then that's when you start implementing robots.txt and no index, uh, no index directives as well to try and carve off. Because what you don't want to happen in the worst case scenario is robots crawling tens of millions of variations of a page. Um, so rather than seeing all your core products, they just end up down this big rabbit hole. So that you know that's a complex question. There's some best practice. If you're lucky enough to be building a site, you can go with, which is why we try and say, get SEO people involved to begin with. Otherwise, it's a robots.txt, no index answer. Don't know if you want to add anything to Alex. I think I hammered that one. Sorry. No, I think it's great. <laughs> what in the heck? I think you um, unhecked it. <laughs> Have we got any uh, questions you've seen in comments we want to tackle? Uh... There was kindly explained Bert. 
And I kindly explain was, Bert. I thought that was a really good one for you, Mark. <laughs> no, Bert is the way where it's um, Google tries to understand a search query a search query based in its context so it can go forwards and then backwards so if you've got a search term for like men's heavy on the men's shoes let's go for um so it's like you've got good value men's shoes in london the search term could be men's shoes but then the context is then before and then after it and is bert the way that it sort of like tries to understand that query yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, so BERT stands for Bi-Directional Encoder Representations from Transformers. I mean, what more do you need to know than that, really? Okay. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, it's, so it's more to do with Google actually understanding the intent of the search query. So they gave some examples about um, search, you know, complex searches like um, someone from Brazil searching for US visa. And that's a very specific nuanced search that Google needs to know, actually, you know, although they're searching for US visa, that's like the main entity here, because of those very important linking words, you know, from and things that needs to say, okay, well, they're from Brazil. So I need to make sure it's like um, someone foreign coming into the country. They're the type of results. And they gave some really nice before and after results because by with that understanding of intent, um, you know, it allows Google to show a more diverse set of search results. So I think they'll become less reliant again on links um, and, and main keywords. Um, and I'd add there's, you know, there's no real way for you to like optimize for BERT really, in my opinion. Um, if you're writing for humans, you're writing specifically, you're doing your keyword research anyway. The idea is that Google, you know, this is a technology at Google and actually Bing was, has been using it for even longer than Google, but it, it should be a way that they can just understand what you're writing about. Uh, here we go. Uh, how do we test a PWA, whether it is renderable uh, by Googlebot or not, any specific tool to, to, to do so? Um, I mean, my, my shout on that would be just always to put it through um, the web rendering in Google Search Console. As far as Google's concerned, they've said that rendering engine that's using their kind of Chrome instances is as close as you're going to get. I would point out, it's, it's a really like uh, sort of technical detail, but Googlebot itself is the crawler that's essentially going around the web, looking at raw HTML and gathering links. Googlebot's not rendering JavaScript or CSS. Um, Googlebot's sending stuff back to Caffeine, um, which is Google's rendering service, which then actually executes the, the JavaScript and CSS and, and tries to understand what's on, on the page. Um, but I think that's, that's, the, that's the best answer I think I can give for that one. Uh, let's have a look at our pre-questions as well. I'm aware we... We're about half an hour now. Are you okay for time, Alex? Yeah, for sure, sure. Yeah. Someone just dropped something off, I heard. Oh, brilliant. Uh, cool. Uh, so I rarely or never seen a target word used in H5 and H6. Is there any proven test with results? Hello? Oh, oh, so I'll get this one. So um, I've just been uh, opted for this one. So H5 and H6, so header tags are generally what we've seen when we make a web page that we have this normally bigger text to say what the page is about and then different subsections. Um, the, I think it was the, I, I can't remember if it was a, I think it was a search metric study 
that actually showed there was a negative correlation between ranking um, and using header tags. Um, now, obviously, the correlation doesn't imply causation. We know that. But in my book, header tags anyway aren't like a big ranking factor. It's important to note that Google, as I said a minute ago, is rendering the CSS. So even if it's just like normal text, if it's bigger on the page, Google will know that and it will class that text as more important. So I'd say the, you know, the nitpicking of is it an H1 and H2 and H3 or is it just big text is less important than it's ever been. Um, I think, you know, the impact of H1, H2s, H3s is fairly limited anyway. It definitely helps and optimization is the sum of small things. But I think by the time you're down to H5 and H6, like I've kind of lost interest by then. Yeah. I don't know about you. Absolutely. We sort of tend to do H1, H2, but very often for the sort of clients that we're working with, it's more important to have a nicely branded message on page as a H1 or H2 than having something that's just blatantly keyword stuffed and has a really sort of negative user experience. So there's always sort of like a balance in terms of how far you go in, uh, with your optimization. So I am just looking through. Here we go. Our paid guest post good for SEO. Chuck that oh. curveball at you, Alex. Um, well, if you own, no, I won't say that. Um, <laughs> um, well, it depends. Um, I think that um, historically, so there's like an ever creeping sort of evolution to SEO. And so 15, 20 years ago, what was great and really, really worked and was easy then as an industry everyone moves towards and then does a whole load of it and then slowly through time the quality sort of comes down um and then we all have to raise our standards either because of something that say google is uh, doing and saying or because there's people in the industry doing like really tremendous work that we all then aspire to try and do so i think that um, in terms of like guest posting and that kind of stuff is not really a sort of go-to thing that we do for a lot of our clients. And the value of it is more for um, the audience base that you'll get. Um, but it's not like a massive thing, I don't think. Uh, but I, undoubtedly, I think it would work. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, we don't, so we don't do any like paid linking. Um, and as Alex said, like, I, I bought loads of links throughout my SEO career. Um, and again, as I said, like a long time ago, it's pretty much the own, you know, it was the only way you were, you were going to get to rank for um, competitive stuff. Now, I think if I'm doing like, say like if I was doing like an affiliate site, for instance, um, and maybe some not building a brand per se, like I would be much more um, inclined to look at, um, you know, buying links and stuff because at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're Google's rules. They're not law and you can choose to do whatever you like. Um, for building a brand, I feel that, you know, Google's done a fairly good job of being opaque about which links are working and which links are not. And I just think that if, you know, if you, if you, even if you don't get a penalty and those paid links lose value, you don't know it's just lost equity that you could have put into something else. So the money you're spending on buying, um, you know, links that, you know, that will have a, a life shelf life before those links get found because they will eventually get found and devalued. Um, you could have put into something else that's going to, you know, have content, uh, sorry, have value for forever, like content. Um, 
the only exceptions are possibly if you've got if you're in very specific niches and you, you're very limited on money to start up you could maybe use it as a kickoff strategy but again like it's not something i'd recommend because there are risks to it and i'm always straight up with people about if, as long as as long as you understand the risks of what you're doing you know it's your decision at the end of the day and you know and i'm not saying paid links don't work because very well operated pbns i've seen personally work very well but then the money you're talking for those is like talk to us if you've got a 10 grand a month to spend and for that you can be doing decent stuff for your users yeah, and you don't want to be the agency that gets um, a client banned from um, the index. Like yeah, for, for or sure. BMW or that kind of thing. It's just sort of like reputationally you'll be... Yeah, for sure. Challenged. Uh, how do you make blog schema markup dynamic across an entire website, i.e. the title and meta descriptions change dynamically based on the blog post's URL? Ooh. <laughs> so... Um, I've seen a couple of similar questions in here. So I just wanted to highlight for those that haven't discovered it, uh, Google Tag Manager. Um, so Google Tag Manager is a system that will allow you to dynamically insert JavaScript on your page and, and um, modify elements to it. So if you don't have access to the like back end, because the, the, the best answer is, you know, you make the back end system do these things you want to do dynamically. If you're asking this question, I'm assuming for whatever reason you can't do that. So my advice would be to use um, Google Tag Manager because you can set up rules based on the URL you're on and you can use JavaScript to manipulate the page title, the meta description. You can pretty much manipulate anything in the in the DOM um, with that. And the same for um, Vincent's question here, which is the best way to add a no index to a list of URLs without adding it manually to every site. Again, the answer would be in the back end, but if you can't do that, you can use Google Tag Manager to do this. So, and this will give you insight into this crawling and rendering series. So you'll see the page get crawled uh, by Google and it won't see the no index tag because it's added by JavaScript. When that page gets rendered by Caffeine, Google will be like, oh, it's got a no index tag on it. So we'll actually then drop that page from the index. So you can again, dynamically just put a list of URLs into Google Tag Manager. It's tons of uh tutorials online on on how to use google tag manager so i won't really go into that um should we do one more before yeah, we finish is, is seo dead mark <laughs> i wasn't sure if this was a troll question i think this is a troll question but go for it <laughs> i i think like all things, there's a cycle and there's a constant process of dying and being reborn. And so it's just a transition. So um, in some ways it is, but in some ways it isn't. No, is my answer. <laughs> or everyone wouldn't be here. <laughs> so um, I really enjoyed that. That was fun. Um, I think we'll do another one of these if you're up for it. For sure, I think it's fun. For sure. So, um, and I promise I will get everyone off to a smoother start and um, we'll we'll start on time next time because this was, as I said at the beginning, so apologies for starting late. Apologies for 301 redirecting you over to a new event because this was my first rodeo on LinkedIn Live. Um, and obviously being live, you can't really test it unless you're live. So I just had to go for it. I know what I'm doing now. So maybe... Um, we might do this as a regular thing. We've still got a whole bunch of questions that came and in here. That we, say, we could try and keep hold of these questions and then um, pick up on some yeah. of the guys. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, apart from that, thanks everyone for joining in. Uh, really great to hear your questions. Hope you've found something useful from here and we'll leave the recording of this episode live up as well. Um, you can check out our, um, our websites that we're at with Canada and Alex is at climbingtrees.com. Brilliant. See you later, Thank Alex. You. Thanks so much. Cheers, Mark. Cheers, guys. I hope you enjoyed that LinkedIn live session. We are going to be back on the podcast on Monday, the 26th of April for our final episode of the month. And as I said, if you connect with me on LinkedIn, Mark Williams Cook, you'll get updates to when we do our next live Q&A. If you'd like to join in, submit a question, or maybe even if you'd like to come and answer some questions with us. Until then, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, subscribe, and look forward to you hopefully listening again. Have a great week.